Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoit Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we have a very special guest with us today. We don't want to waste too much time because I know he is very busy as they wrap up their legislative session in New York. And we're going to have with us Stephen Aquario. He is the your counterpart for the New York Association of Counties. And it's Stephen and Michael rather than Steve and Mike. Is that right, Michael? I know that's something that drives you up the wall. <laughs> it's fine. Now, we're we're excited to have have Stephen join us, and and I think we have a lot of interesting common ground with our our friends and colleagues from New York State. So, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Michael and Kevin. Thanks for having me. I, I will say, um, I've been anxious to get get Stephen to join the call with us. Um, he's actually been a leader of the group that he and I both participate in. It's a, it's a national conference of state association executives. So, um, and we, uh, we're all the folks who manage and, and try and lead the, the state county associations. We've plugged in a couple of our counterparts into this podcast. I know I've learned a lot from him. And I mean, all joking aside, I've shamelessly stolen a number of ideas from him and from the New York State Association. That's, that's absolutely the way we do business. So, so thanks for taking time and joining us. Vice versa, Michael. We we also share a lot of commonalities with the states, as you mentioned, but so too with the associations. And I admire the great work that you do as the Maryland Association of Counties Executive Director. And also for our listeners in Maryland, uh, Michael is an officer in the National Council of County <laughs> Association Executives leading the 50 states uh, with their executive directors. And Michael, we're grateful that you head up that national committee as well. Thank you. So, Stephen, let's talk about the New York Association of Counties. Uh, Most of our listeners here in Maryland, they'll want a frame of reference for the main functions of county governments in New York State and what your association does to help them. So talk a little about the association, uh, maybe some of the big issues you all are dealing with up there and how you work to, to help your members be effective and successful, particularly when it comes to legislative stuff. Well, we're approaching our 100th year organization formed in 1925. And as we approach this 100-year anniversary. The association is undertaking really a vision uh, analysis. Basically, what are the priorities of the counties of New York and what are the priorities of the association of counties and how can we best align the two? And we're doing this through our board of directors comprised of 15 representatives across the state representing the judicial districts of the state. The counties are broken up by judicial district and they compose the board of directors. And we'll be talking with them over the next couple of weeks about the things that will be confronting the counties. Taking a look in the rear view mirror, we've all been through so much since 2009, the great recession Going into the recovery, President Obama leading us through those very difficult years of the Great Recession. What did we learn? What did we do with those funds? 
We then, of course, as we all know, have gone through such a problem in our public health system and, and trying to address COVID and what did it do to our economy? What did it do to our people? We lost a million Americans, 67,000 New Yorkers. What is our public infrastructure like, public health infrastructure like, and how can we best address that? So going through a visionary analysis, the needs of the counties, what are the issues that they see pressing both now and in five years from now? And so we'll be going through this to try to best align the association to be in a position to meet the needs of the counties and meet the needs of the association and make sure that we have the capacity to properly address these community problems. We have a small staff, much like Maryland. We do a lot of work with a small amount of people (laughs) making a large contribution to this effort here on behalf of 20 million New Yorkers. 57 counties in the five boroughs of of New York City. That's the association's membership up here. Very diverse. Different types of government exist amongst the counties. Some have county-wide elected officials called a county executive. Some operate with a county manager or administrator, and some just straight with a board of legislators or supervisors. But it's a very diverse state like Maryland, rural, urban, suburban type governmental entities, and we're, we're really trying to position ourselves to meet the emerging trends and needs of the membership. I, I think you, you point out that the, the round number thing, like coming up on a hundred year commemoration of the association, it does give you a little license for that introspection and sort of calibration check. So I, I, I admire that you've got your leadership bought in that now's a good time to be thinking about, you know, what can we pull from the last 10, 15 years that might help the association and its members be better and sharper for the coming 10, 15? You know, it's a useful exercise to go through almost independent of what the specific issues are. Um, so, you know, hats off to you and, and your elected leaders for, for seeing, you know, this is a sharpen the saw exercise, right? To, you know, make sure that you're, you're pointed in the right direction. I like that. That's right, Michael. It's appropriate to deal with things that come up in the moment. For instance, we're in the end stage of our legislative session. This is the last week as we're Oof. doing this recording. We have a number of bills that are racing through from creating new judges where counties have to pay for their chambers, or enacting a whole series of uh, criminal justice-related issues to address gun violence in this state, of course, in the city of Buffalo, in the county of Erie, New yeah. York. A serious, event, a serious shooting happened, a massive tragedy, lost lives. The state legislature, the governor, are trying to address those issues. So we have to pivot very quickly and address these contemporary issues that are affecting all of the counties in different ways, but so too do we have an obligation to address the long-term needs of the counties and the long-term needs of the association. And so that's why we are taking this this step as we approach that 100-year anniversary in a few years to properly set the vision, the mission, the core values of the two entities, the counties and the association. I'd be happy to share with you, Michael, uh, a look in the rearview mirror of what we've been through, a chart that we did 
and sort of the contemporary issues that we work through. I think that you'll enjoy that, and so will your members. Yeah, I think that's something we can. We always put together some show notes. We'll, we'll put something on our on, on our blog site that has some information that comes along with the podcast. We'd be happy to include that. It might be a good illustration. You know, not the greatest content for the audio blog, but uh, an illustration to go along with it could be could be useful. So we appreciate that. I, you know, I'm a budget guy, so I, I like the analogy here. You know, I, I like that you're sort of looking at the operating budget, which is the short term, and then you're also in your association looking at the the out years, the capital, right? So you're looking out what can we build in the future, what's going to be important as we look down the road. So I really like that. I also have to say I'm, I'm impressed and very thankful that you're with us as you are in your last week of session. We know how that goes. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. And, and and you did mention COVID, of course. Of course, we've lost a million people in the United States. It's a, it's a it's a very important issue, and we're grappling with it down here in Maryland as well. Both of our states are in the same region. I imagine that we're now both somewhere in the same place on the COVID scale. Don't need to get super detailed here, but what are you all seeing up there? Because here in Maryland, we've seen caseloads rising, but so far we haven't hit a crisis with our hospitals and hospitalizations like we saw over the past few years when things got really bad. Well, I want to salute the Maryland Association of Counties and Michael as its executive director for serving the Maryland counties during this crisis, this COVID crisis that we went through these past three years. And so to thank the New York County officials uh, and the NISAC staff up here for what we did collectively to address this pandemic in our state, uh, we had a very difficult April of 2022 really difficult uh, 71,000 Omicron subvariant cases. We experienced a very uh, contagious virus still uh, we are experiencing in New York State. It did get, get down to a lower level last week. Uh, however, we still have 32 of our 62 counties in what's called the CDC ranked as a high risk county uh, and a strain on hospitals. Uh, but really, uh, I think the good news is it, it's, it's lowering itself right now. The severity of illness and hospitalization, but uh, it's really our focus right now in local public health, the state of New York, the counties of New York, really focusing on boosters. We have a lower level percentage of individuals getting the booster, adults, and now we have children being authorized for the vaccination and also boosters. So the boosters is really what the New York focus is right now, how to get its 18 plus population boosted. Well, it's, it's I mean, obviously that's one of the areas, especially if you, if you think the numbers are low and there's an opportunity to gain there, that is one of the best ways to keep people safer, you know, to move the needle, so to speak. Um, so, so you know, local leaders are part of that. I think I think we've all sort of we've been gaining some increased sense of you know of what what does it take to be effective in this circumstance. And the trusted voice is a really big part of it. Maybe it's a local elected official or a religious leader or a community leader, but it's all of the above pointing in the direction of take care of yourselves, your family, your neighbors, do, you know, do the right thing. And sometimes that's, you know, that's, that's been a tough message for some folks. We get it. It has been a tough message. Uh, the message uh, up here right now in New York is indoor mask wearing uh, when you're in the high risk counties. Some are doing it, some are not. It is an optional thing. It's not mandatory. And I think that's a good thing. I think the days of the mandates either from the federal government or the state government should be over. They are over turning that over to the counties 
to more properly assess their community and impose whatever types of restrictions should happen in their community. So the counties are fully engaged right now on this. Uh, yeah. Kevin, as you mentioned, uh, it is a thing in the rearview mirror, sort of, but we are also so too bracing for the fall, preparing for the fall, working with the congressional delegation to make sure that they have resources should this virus grow again in the fall and that we're in a, the best position that we can be to help our communities and help our people. Well, I, I know, you know, talking about this as an issue where, where the counties are on the front lines, it, it does feel like in the last couple of years, as, as COVID has, has grabbed the headlines and become the sort of above the fold public health issue, that to some degree, it, it feels like the public has lost focus that we're still in the middle of an opioid crisis that if anything is worse than it was two or three years ago in, in, in many parts of the country, we're still feel, feeling it very acutely here in Maryland. I know your association, I know you personally have been really engaged on this and your counties have as well. I'll put in a quick plug and say that, that Stephen and, and NISAC were really big leaders in helping to get the state associations plugged in so we could help our counties navigate through this, especially when it came to these legal settlements with the manufacturers and distributors. You know, the legal side of things, that's, that's, a, that's a part of this that um, is terra incognita for, for me personally and, and for a number of us in leadership. So, I know the Maryland counties are better off with the settlement we achieved here in our state as a result of guidance and insight from, from New York State. So we're grateful for that. I'm really interested in your perception on, on where things stand with that and what the next chapter looks like for, for fighting this continued problem. It's a big deal. Well, thank you, Michael, for the, the kind words. Uh, it was a collective effort amongst the counties. Thousands of them ended up suing states, counties, local governments, hospitals, healthcare institutions. We finally achieved a settlement with the manufacturers and with the distributors of opioids. This has been a plague in New York State, across the United States. It's largely uh, an American problem. It's, it's, it's unique to our country and what we did to our people. And I'm grateful that we have this settlement and I'm even more grateful that we were able to structure it individually to each state. As you mentioned, Michael, the work of the Maryland Association, its attorney general, the county attorneys, corporation councils, the local governments in Maryland working with the state attorney general, same thing in New York State, the counties working with our attorney general in New York, putting together a plan that we think best addresses our community needs. This is a very serious community threat, fentanyl opioids, the derivatives of opioids. Fentanyl is raging right now in New York State. Unfortunately, people are killing themselves unnecessarily, unfortunately, through no fault of their own, unrealizing what it is that they're using and ending up in our, in our emergency rooms and dying in many instances. So the fight continues for opioids. This funding will be with us for the next decade plus. So we have a plan now to work through our communities, our counties, our substance abuse providers, and best put this money to use for what's called prevention programs, treatment programs, ways that we can stop really the next generation of individuals to break this cycle of addiction. There's a lot of mental health things wrapped around this issue. And I think through the work 
of the counties of these states, we changed public policy. We couldn't get legislation through the United States Congress to address this issue. We couldn't get it through state legislatures. We couldn't get it uh, in other ways. So we took to the courtrooms, which really appears to be the best venue in certain circumstances to force policy change. And I think that what we're seeing now across the United States and certainly very acute in New York is gun violence. And so I think that the next evolution of this issue is going to happen in our courts with gun violence and how can we change public policy. Our state is now moving into homeland security assessments, asking the counties to do threat assessments right now within their community to try to catch these acts of violence before they happen. So the opioid litigation really blazed a new trail for local governments to change public policy, to truly help their communities get a new funding dedicated stream of resources that we could bring to our communities, that we can help these substance abuse providers that were really inadequately funded for the past several decades and really help break the cycle of addiction. I did want to bring up the gun violence issue because it's very acute in our state. I know it's acute in Maryland as well. And I hope that we could use county governments, uh, urban areas. It's not just an urban problem. It affects our suburban and rural areas. And that's why counties have a role in gun violence as well. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it raises something that that we've talked about a little bit um, at various times on this podcast, and, and that is for the last, I don't know, decade or two, we've increasingly, like Americans have looked to the Congress and increasingly we feel like whether it's because of, you know, the issue of the moment is the filibuster in the Senate or if it's just general discord with partisanship in D.C. or the process of district drawing, whatever you think the ingredients for the stew are, the notion that the Congress can't act in ways that even um, you know, even majority of Americans of all stripes uh, support, you end up seeing an awful lot of policy focus shifting elsewhere. And we've been talking about that as things are popping up in the state legislature that 25 years ago would really not have been here. They'd be in Congress, labor laws and other things like that, that, well, the blue state's going to take care of it because the Congress just is never going to get around to it. Um, I'm sure red states are seeing their own sort of mirror image kind of policy advances because they're probably similarly frustrated that the Congress can't, you know, can't address them. Um, maybe this is another way, way that the, the balloon gets squeezed in one place. And if Congress can't address these issues, it'll end up being through the courts, through litigation. We've seen, you know, environmental policy driven by litigation for decades. Maybe, the, the, you know, the, the swath of things driven by litigation and third-party lawsuits will be a bigger share of, of public policy than we're, than we're used to in our lifetime. It's possible. I think it's an important piece, Michael, and, and I really appreciate your, your framing that issue that way. And it, litigation is a part of policymaking here when the other branches, as you mentioned, the Congress being uh, unable to achieve that with the White House, with our president, these changes oftentimes get pushed down to the states, and in our particular case, the counties helping to shape those state policies. This is National Gun Violence Awareness Month in June. 
of 2022, and I plan on doing whatever it is that I can to call attention to this issue that county governments have huge mental health services. How can we best heal our communities and prevent these acts of violence? What is it the best way that we could do as an association? But there's other areas too, which seem to be unable to be advanced in Washington, D.C. Things such as climate change. Uh, how do we uh, convert our, our systems of electricity or energy needs in our public buildings where will we be buying our energy as a governmental unit, a county, converting our fleets? Uh, how do we best do that? Uh, pickup trucks, electric pickup trucks or dump trucks or police cruisers. Uh, how do we provide a charging station for, for the public and at large and for the governmental entities, school bus conversions, electric school buses, what is the role of the counties? This whole issue of climate change is a very complex one. And so it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out over the next five to 10 years. I do see that as an area of great concern uh, for the New York counties, the Maryland counties, counties across the United States, because it's an issue that's just going to come whether we like it or not. And uh, the cost of energy right now, we're approaching $5 a gallon of gasoline in the state of New York as we speak here. And uh, no end in sight. So this this issue of energy is going to be with us for quite some time. No doubt about it. And I mean, we just wrapped our legislative session in April. Climate change was among the the, the, the most uh, debated uh, pieces of legislation. We had a, a massive piece of legislation passed, but of course it was amended. And so that's going to be, you know, I think on the menu for many years to come here in Maryland and of course up in New York as well and in many states. Another issue where we've seen Congress unable to act and unable to maybe do the will of the people, if you will. If you, if you look at polling nationally, I think there are a lot of people who think that cannabis should be legal for adult use. That's another issue. I think New York and Maryland are, are similarly situated. Adult use cannabis is going to be on the ballot in Maryland this fall. It will surely pass. We have a lot to untangle here about how to set it up in Maryland. I, I'm, in, I'm curious as to, to where New York is on this and, and what counties have been dealing with uh, as legalization for adult use has, has come into play. Well, the, the Congress, thank you, Kevin. The, the Congress, in my opinion, needs to act to address uh, how these businesses are running. In other words, this is a straight cash business. Uh, that's a dangerous occupation to be operating strictly with cash, not using credit cards or checks or other ways that we could track money. It's a, it's a straight cash business. And I believe that adds a certain element of danger uh, to operating a business in, in that regard. New York is legalized right now, adult use cannabis. We've had, of course, uh, medical use authorized for several years now. The adult use cannabis will come into effect very soon, perhaps by the end of 2022, uh, certainly the first part of 2023. Our border states, certainly Massachusetts, uh, has this as legal right now. It's been a struggle for counties. We have, again, a, a, an opioid epidemic raging as we speak, and we're moving into legalization of cannabis. So the public health side of this, the law enforcement side of this issue in the state of New York has been very aggressively marketing or advertising the dangers of legalization of adult use cannabis, making sure our children don't become addicted and again, starting that cycle of addiction with substance abuses. But I think by and large, it's, it's gonna be uh, fine. It's a municipal issue in New York State, meaning the lower units of government, the townships or the villages, authorize the 
uh, dispensary. And so these dispensaries uh, will open all across the state. I think about 30% of them opted out. The vast majority of New York authorizing this. Taxation is an issue. The state has to impose a tax, whether you're in Maryland, New York, Colorado, Oregon, Washington State. You have to have a taxation that doesn't drive consumers to the illegal market, but that it's competitive with the illegal market, meaning people will go into a government-sanctioned uh, cannabis store, uh, and, and the revenues from that taxation can be shared with the state and the local governments. We're focusing in on drug resource recognition experts, rather. So when you have uh, driving under the influence, big campaign right right now by the New York counties, the state of New York, to make sure folks aren't driving around under the influence. But I think it's been a long time coming, coming for the legalization of adult use cannabis. We're just focusing on the public health side of it, driving under the influence side of it, taxation side of it. And an area that I put a lot of work into but failed uh, here to advocate on behalf of was was the areas of the state where the agricultural areas of the state where these crops were grown, that I thought that there should have been a cultivation uh, tax to help the local governments and the areas where the product was cultivated versus being consumed because the urbanized areas where the consumption will be greatest, of course, will collect the most tax taxation from this product. And I thought that the rural areas of the state where it was cultivated and grown should participate in that. But it's a work in progress up here. We'll be happy to share what happens here over the next couple of years with Michael uh, as we go through it. Yeah, it just like the, the number of challenging policy issues it raises, both in the debate, but even like the criminal justice and, and social equity issues and so forth, then just the nuts and bolts, administration and public safety and taxation and regulation and licensing and so forth. It's just like the list goes on and on. We've we've done entire segments of this podcast just talking about the nuts and bolts of it, and it just doesn't end. So we're we've got a lot we've got a lot of loose ends, even assuming it passes on our ballot this fall. Uh, an awful lot for our state legislature to to mop up before this thing is is, is ready to roll. I think it's one of those issues, Michael. It really was a will of the people. Uh, most mm-hmm. of the you know, elected officials, the counties, were not drivers of this policy in New York State. Uh, we are responsible for law enforcement, mental health, public health efforts. We had just gone through the opioid crisis, so we weren't exactly waving the flag to have it be enacted, but it was purely in our state, a matter of state public policy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know, you know, as you talked big picture, as we were kicking off about sort of the range of, of, of county issues um, that, that you and the association are focused on. And as we were, we were talking about setting things up for this conversation, you, know, you had mentioned emergency medical services as, as one of the things that's been a, a timely issue. And Wow, it, it sure has been an issue here as well um, in Maryland. Uh, we, we, we were having difficulty with both volunteer and professional emergency medical in, in Maryland. And obviously the COVID pandemic hasn't made things better. It's made things even tougher uh, to deliver service and keep staff around and so forth. I'm interested in what you all are facing up in New York State. Is it is it the same kind of stuff we're having here, hiring, retention, you know, just operational funding, that sort of stuff. If you can't, you know, if, if, if COVID means you can't have your annual fundraiser, you know, 
you know, carnival or picnic or that sort of thing, uh, then suddenly your main fundraiser for the local fire department's gone. Is that kind of stuff you're dealing with as well? Well, there are so many issues, as you know, Michael, with public policy and the challenges that confront the county elected officials, the appointed department heads and things that we deal with on a daily basis. But EMS, Emergency Medical Services, is indeed in a crisis in New York. Uh, I, I would venture to guess around the United States, another issue which we could use the help of our Congress on, but certainly uh, exacerbated through a COVID. We really saw the critical need for emergency medical services, uh, using the knowledge that we gained from the COVID-19 pandemic. How can we best get uh, medicine to people without bringing them into a hospital? So I think that goes back to the earlier part of our podcast here. What's What's the future going to be like? And technology is certainly going to be part of that discussion. How do we use technology to help uh, emergency room diversion efforts? Those are the things that we're talking about up here. Certainly, Michael, the volunteerism of our firefighters and our EMS. We can't hire uh, the salaries for EMS community are much, much lower than they would be if they worked in different occupations. So trying to address the salary issues that confront the transportation issues of EMS service, uh, providing property tax credits, community college credits. How can we best reboost this effort to bring our volunteers into volunteer fire, EMS? What, how can we best address this shortage that we seem to be experiencing? As you mentioned, COVID putting a problem on of generating funding for these very, very important public safety community. We just don't have the resources at the county level. So we need to think about different ways of providing this service. In some areas of the state, they're asking for special legislation to create a county district, fire district. We don't have that right now. It's individually done. So uh, some studies are underway right now to see how we can best provide this at local option, of course in our state, but a real challenge for us is gonna be with us for several years to come here. But the association, like Maryland Association, will indeed be putting its emphasis and research, budgetary skills and advocacy skills to work with our states and the federal government to continue to help this community, very important for our, our, our public at large. No doubt, and it's one that, you know, it's an issue that we face here in Maryland. We made that one of our top priorities for the 2022 session was to up the reimbursement and divert people from the emergency room. Things like mobile integrated health definitely catching on, and, and we're going to see that down the road. I'm interested, too. I mean, you mentioned the volunteer aspect and being able to recruit and retain folks. I think we're just seeing a lack of uh, or, or a downswing in civil engagement across multiple sectors, right? We also see the same thing with election judges. If you go down to your Moose or Elks Club, you'll see that their membership is down. People are just not as civilly engaged as they once were. And that's a huge challenge, particularly here in Maryland. We have many counties that rely on 100% volunteer fire service. So it's something that we're gonna have to tackle down the road. And you, you said it, I mean, the resources just aren't there to have to, to go out and hire a bunch of career folks. We'd love to do that. And in some instances, the counties are starting to do that to, to supplement. But at some point, this is something that we're going to have to address. And it sounds like that's an issue in New York as well. Absolutely, Kevin. I know we're ending our podcast here, but counties are definitely being asked to fill these growing gaps in EMS services in their communities. 
like Maryland, the New York counties don't have this resources. The flexibility is not there. The statutory authority uh, is lacking. So we're going to need to work with our states to best position uh, the counties to be helpful in this regard. Really, these these technology has really changed this now, really enabling our ambulances to serve as mobile emergency rooms, providing pre-hospital care, and especially these cases of stroke and heart attacks. These services are widely recognized as one of the primary determining factors in, in a patient's ability to survive these events. And so how do we best get the personnel? How do we best drive the resources to try to help keep technology up to date without going back to the taxpayers of these is individual municipalities. So counties are going to have a growing role in this area, I predict, working with our municipal governments. And it's something we're just going to have to keep working together on. Okay, so definitely we've seen a lot in common between Maryland and New York. A lot of the stuff that you're dealing with up there, we're dealing with down here. What else is hot policy-wise up in New York State that Marylanders might be interested or that we'll be looking at as, as we head into our next legislative session and that we're preparing for now, quite frankly? As I mentioned, gun violence is a big issue here. I think that they're going to be addressing that as they leave here uh, as we're recording this podcast, but that's certainly going to be on the horizon uh, exemptions on sales tax on gasoline. The economy is really what's on everybody's mind right now. And I think that's something uh, high inflation, 40-year inflation right now. How long will consumer spending uh, continue at the rate it is before it drops? And how are the local governments with the scarce resources they have and continue to to take in, be able to weather these storms. So all eyes are going to be on the economy as we go through these next couple of years. And before we conclude, Kevin and Michael, I did want to give a shout out and a special thank you to the Congress for the ARPA funds for the American Rescue Plan funding. This this act provided over $100 billion to the counties, to the states, really to support public health expenditures, address the negative economic impacts caused by by COVID really helped us invest in water, sewer, broadband infrastructure. And I know the Maryland Association of Counties and Michael led this fight in Maryland, and we're very grateful that we achieved this in the Congress. So before we adjourned, I did want to just say a special thank you to the Maryland delegation and everybody else in the Maryland Association of Counties for all their support that they did to bring about this American Rescue Plan. I think that's well said. It's one one important facet of the rescue plan is getting an awful lot of resources to the front lines um, where where we know that's where most of the action and most of the recovery is going to happen. So that, that that's very well said. It took an awful lot of a lot of arrows pointing in the right direction to pull that together. Agreed. So so I know we want to wrap. We want to be respectful of your time, Stephen. But I, I can't help myself that. You know, from time to time, you and I will chat about odds and ends. You'll send me a picture of a strange bird or other things like that. But around this time of year, we do sometimes exchange notes about horse racing. And our two states are our jewels number two and number three in the so-called Triple Crown. Our, our friends in Kentucky are you know, gracious enough to have their little prep race in the first weekend of May. Um, so they've they've done that, and we had our little Belmont prep down here in Baltimore just last week. 
uh, didn't get to have the Derby winner. That was kind of an unusual twist. But uh, so, so, you know, many of the eyes of the horse racing world are heading up to Elmont, New York for the Belmont Stakes. And I'm interested for, for any, either of you guys. Now I know, you know, Kevin, you can be in on this too. And from time to time, you've been known to, to, to find a long shot in here. Um, any thoughts about the Belmont Stakes coming up? Well, I'll just say that I really appreciate the contribution of the horse racing industry in the United States, but in particular in the state of New York, and I'm sure that you share that, Michael, in the state of Maryland, how important this industry is, providing the jobs, uh, bringing about uh, entertainment, a sporting industry that really has survived for hundreds of years uh, in both of our states. So I'm very proud of the history I know there's always debates going on about the subsidies, certainly the state of New York, for yeah. this industry to continue. But it means so much to the region where I live, the greater capital district in Albany and Saratoga, which is like the fourth leg of this triple crown. We almost have two of them here. One, of course, in Elmont, the Belmont Stakes, but so too the Traverse Stakes in mid-August or the end of August, where the Traverse Stakes will run in Saratoga County. But it really makes a big impact in those communities, restaurants, tourism, hospitality, driving taxation, residential housing and property taxes that go along with it. Uh, of course, uh, we hope to have early voting, which was a big deal in public policy over the last few years in our state as we enacted early voting policies, which seem to be working quite well in our state. But we will welcome, hopefully, early voting to the Traverse Stakes. I know that that horse will not come to the Belmont. Uh, I'll be looking at we the people and Rich Strike as we get into the Belmont Stakes, as we get closer to that. And of course, I will always be calling my friend Michael for his thoughts before that great race. Kevin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you, you have to call Michael when it comes to this stuff. But I mean, early voting, that's my horse. And he, it was great to see what happened to the Preakness. I think every elected official, because they felt like they had to uh, place bets on on early voting and hopefully they cashed in. But yeah, that, that was a really cool uh, moment here in, in, in Maryland to see that happen. But I think, I mean, Rich Strike, sitting out the the Preakness. And I think this track up at Belmont, mile and a half sets up really well for Rich Strike. So I think that that's where my money would be and probably will be, but I'm not sure. Michael, give us the give us the long shot that you think is gonna, gonna take Belmont. Is it is it just gonna be Rich Strike or do you have a horse in mind for all of our listeners to make a bunch of money? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, I think Stephen might be on the right track. Um, Rich Strike probably goes off as the favorite here, right? He'll be rested. He took he took he's got five weeks of rest, and and everybody likes that optical view of the late running horse. The next race is going to go super long. Like Belmont is this crazy long mile and a half, you know, twelve furlongs where. We don't, you know, in, in May, we're trying to, to debate which, which of these horses can't get 10 furlongs. And now we're going to ask them to do another quarter mile on top of that. It's bananas. It's an, it's, it's an artifact of an older time. But anyway, um, so am I probably. I will say, uh, you know, Stephen mentions We the People. And this is the horse who, who won the, the Peter Pan Stakes at Belmont um, just a couple of weeks ago. It'll be, you know, two weeks, two weeks before the, the Belmont that horse stole that race on the lead and just looked brilliant at the end. And as appealing as it is to think that a late running horse is going to have the best chance in a really long race, as it turns out, when you've already run a mile and a quarter and then you're asked to make your late kick, 
a lot of horses just don't have anything left. And whoever's in front it, it legitimately has a chance to just clunk home with nobody making a late run. So I give we the people a legitimate shot. I think the, I think the betters probably will too. We're probably not going to get better than like five or six to one on him. Um, I don't know. I, I like this horse, uh, Barber Road, in the Derby, and he ran a pretty creditable sixth place. I mean, it wasn't a threat to win, but he was moving forward at the end. I think he'll be a pretty big price. So maybe we throw those three into a triple and uh, try and come out of this with, you know, I don't think we'll go to the IRS window, but maybe it'll be a lobster dinner instead of, you know, just the usual crab cakes we have down here. Right? Hey, I did want to give a special shout out to the host county of the Belmont Stakes. That would be Nassau County, New York. All right. <laughs> Nassau County, New York. So, all right, there are your, there are your picks. The trifecta right there. You can have your lobster dinner and uh, splurge a little bit, not just the crab cakes, as Michael says. I'm eating PB&J, but I'm glad, Michael, you get crab cakes and maybe we'll all eat lobster soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, uh, we know you're in your last week of session, and I can't imagine how busy you are. But, Stephen Aquario, it's been a pleasure. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Kevin, and thank you very much to my counterpart, great friend, Michael Sanderson. We'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Stephen Aquario and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.